Amen. You may be seated. Today I'd like to preach a a one-off message from Psalms 1 and 2. Printed there on page 8 in your bulletin. So notice in your Bible, if you have it, above Psalm 1, it says Book 1. Just note that. So Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, the Torah, in Hebrew, of the Lord. And on his law, his Torah, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers... Take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. We ask for your blessing, our Lord, on our hearts now as we receive this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I grew up in the church, and there was all of this pressure all the time. You're supposed to be reading your Bible. And I found, maybe some of you can relate to this, I found as I was reading the Old Testament in particular, the books before Jesus, that this was really quite difficult going because there were some great stories, I mean, some really wonderful stories, but in between all those stories, there was just all this stuff that I got to say did not make sense to me. It did not seem relevant to my life. I just really honestly wasn't even that interested, but I was a dutiful, you know, church-going boy, and so I tried to read through it, but you just kind of kept hoping the stories would come. But if there was one book in the Old Testament, I find this actually as I talk to people now about their Bible reading. If there was one book in the Old Testament that did seem pretty relatable to me, it was the book of Psalms. And I thought of the book of Psalms as basically kind of this basket full of poems um, in no particular order. And these poems were about human feelings. And so what I could do was I could kind of pick a psalm out of the basket that would match my feelings. You know, I'm having a sad day, so I'm going to pick a sad psalm. Or I'm feeling particularly joyful today, and I'm going to pick a joyful psalm. Or today I really am feeling, you know, excited about God, so I'll pick an exultant psalm. And that was kind of how I read the psalms. And it seemed sort of relevant. And then at some point, I ran across some material that absolutely blew my mind, (laughs) and I realized, looking at the Psalter, the 150 books of the Psalms, that it's actually more like looking at a cathedral, and every single stone in this cathedral has been precisely placed and exquisitely designed, and the whole thing, when you step back from it, is just 
blazing with God's glory and his plans for the world. And what I want to try to do today is I actually want to try to give you all here today just a glimpse of that cathedral, and I want to do that by standing for just a few minutes. We will not be long. A few minutes, I want to stand in this two-paneled doorway, Psalms 1 and 2, two panels of the doorway into this altar, into this cathedral. I want to stand in the doorway, and I just want to look briefly through the doorway at the cathedral. Then I want to look at the door itself, and then I just want to look back at our lives quickly in light of what we've seen. So I want to start by looking through the door, this two-panel door of Psalms 1 and 2, at what kind of lies beyond in the rest of the 150 psalms. Now, while every stone, individual stone, every individual psalm in this cathedral was carved, these are all carved at different times by different writers over quite a long period of time, the, the, the cathedral itself, the final form of this book, was assembled in what we call the exile. You guys remember that about 600 years before Jesus, Israel was carted off to Babylon into an exile outside their land. The temple was destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. It was just a horrible, horrible time. They're captives under a pagan power. It's probably the darkest time in Israel's history. And the issue in exile, of course, if you're sitting by the rivers of Babylon and you're reflecting on all the, you know, what's gone on since Abraham, you have a very basic question. And that question is, how is God's plan for Israel And that really matters because God's plan for Israel, if you know the story of Israel well, the story of Israel is about God's plans for the world. Like as God takes care of Israel, that means he's going to bring blessing to the nations. And so the giant question in exile is how is God's plan for Israel and through Israel to the world, how is that ever going to be fulfilled under these circumstances? Because we have lost everything catastrophically as God's people. And I suppose some of you probably feel this sometimes in your own life. You know, there are times when you look at evils happening in the world. Um, There are times when you look at just your own sufferings and the sufferings of people you love. Times as we, heaven help us, enter another election year, as you look at corrupt powers in the world, you know, you can sit back and say, you know, how, sure, we can read the Bible and talk about all this wonderful stuff God has promised, but it sounds like we're just trying to escape into a world that makes us feel better. How's it going to happen under these circumstances? And so the 150 Psalms are, in response to the exiles, they are an intense meditation, really intense meditation, that basically kind of retells Israel's story and poetically responds to that story over the course of five books. How many of you have noticed reading your Bible that the Psalms are broken up into five books? Now be honest, don't try to impress me, I'm not impressed. How many of you have actually seen the five books marked in your, in your, in your book of Psalms? And the crazy thing uh, for me as I was looking at that when I was younger was I just thought, you know, some editor at Crossway put those in. I don't know, help us kind of break it up. But you notice, that the, you notice this at the, before Psalm 1, before Psalm 42, Psalm 73, Psalm 90, and Psalm 107. And this is a meditation over five books. And it's interesting just to kind of step back and look at what these five books do. So, you know, in book one, the voice that we hear is mostly David. King David. Most of the Psalms in Book One are by David, and it's interesting. Psalm One, or Book One, rather, opens in Psalm Three with David crying out in exile. He's running for his life from his son Absalom, who has usurped his throne. And his opening line in Psalm Three is, "Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are those who rise up against me. Many of those who say of my soul, there's no help for him in God.' You think that would have resonated with the exiles? And then in Book Two, these guys called the sons of Korah." 
Now, Korah was one of the major rebels against Moses back in the book of Numbers. He was so bad that God opened up the earth and just swallowed Korah alive. That's uh, pretty intense. But Korah's sons were faithful, and they now join in book two. They join David, and they talk of panting after God in dry places while their adversaries taunt them. Where's your God? As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. That's the sons of Korah. Well, with those two books behind us in book three, we finally just baldly state the problem. We open with Psalm 73 and we close with Psalm 89 in book three, and both of these psalms wrestle very intensely with kind of the philosophical problem. How are God's kingdom promises, his promises of a kingdom, his promises of a kingdom especially to David, how are those ever going to be fulfilled? You guys remember Psalm 73? That's that one where the psalmist says, you know, I was doing okay until I looked at the wicked and I was just suddenly so envious of their prosperity. Book four opens with the only psalm written by Moses. And it takes us back. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. If we're going to solve this problem of what do you do when the wicked triumph and God's people are under their heel? Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. And we kind of go back to the basic mercies and promises of God through Moses. And then having looked back in book five, we just kind of have this long, gradual building crescendo of joy as over and over, there's this celebration of God's inexhaustible love, and it culminates in his victory over all of his enemies, and in the very last psalm, all of creation is gathered under choir master David, as Stephen Dempster puts it, and David is leading everything that has breath in praising the Lord. And it's as if the builders of this cathedral, the, the compilers of this psalter, they want us to journey through these 150 psalms to bring us all the way back to God's original plan for all of creation, which is that everything that have br has breath would praise him and all of creation be filled with his glory. Now that little walkthrough brings us to something else. And I'm almost done geeking out here, and then we'll move on. Where else in the Old Testament do you guys find five books that are a five-book collection? The Torah of Moses, or the Pentateuch, called Penta because there are five books. And by the way, just so I can see how, how awake you guys are, what are those five books? Genesis, very good. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You're all out of order, but that's fine. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the five books of Moses. And what is crazy, look at the very back of your bulletin. I got a little diagram there. This is kind of cool. Scholars have shown, this is kind of unexpected. Scholars have shown us that actually the five books of the Psalter, they retrace the books of Moses, but they do it in reverse order. I won't take much time at all on this, but you notice if you start at the top, so Genesis is about God creating everything. Exodus is about God's mighty works for Israel through Moses. Leviticus, now we have a tabernacle. God can live there, but sinners can't. So Leviticus is about how sinners can come live with God. Then in Numbers, we have kind of this long journey to the promised land, and this dude named Korah, as I said, he kind of exemplifies the awful rebellion of Israel against their God in the wilderness. And finally, in Deuteronomy, we have Moses' final sermons where he sets life and death, blessing and cursing before Israel. How's it going to go in the promised land? Depends how you respond to God. Now, Psalm, the book, book one of the Psalms starts in reverse order, and David sets before us blessing and cursing, life and death in, in book one. And then in book two, the sons of Korah, call, you know, instead of rebelling against God, they call Israel hope in God, and they herald the fact that he'll be the victor over all rebellious nations. Book three talks about this problem of how exiles can be restored to live with God. 
Book four retells in very focused ways, starting with Moses' psalm, the story of everything God did for Israel through Moses. And finally, book five ends with, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And it's like we're back in Genesis, God's original plan, right? So there's just a lot going on. And it's as if as the exiles walk through this five-book Psalter, they are actually returning home. They're coming all the way back to the home in Eden where God's presence is and his promises and purposes are that the whole earth will be full of his glory. And if this little brief glimpse I've given you prompts you to walk on into the cathedral and see everything there is to see in this cathedral, mission accomplished for this first point. But I want to now look back at the doorway. So we've looked kind of through the doorway. I just want to come back now and look at the doorway quickly. This two-paneled doorway that kind of swings open into the cathedral. Psalms 1 and 2. Now, if you want to see what ties these two psalms together, you kind of have to remember the very first promise God made to Abraham. And in Genesis 12, it is, this is the promise. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So blessing to Abraham and blessing then to all the families of the earth through him. So Israel's story, the story of Abraham's family, it is about God's plan to bless people who don't deserve it, people who are sinners. Abraham's a sinner, the nations are sinners, but God wants to bless Abraham and bless the nations through him. And what this door does, this two-panel door does, is it shows how, yes, even in the exile, when it's just all gone to pieces, God's blessing can still be received. Blessed is the man who's rooted in the Torah of God. That's how Psalm 1 opens. Psalm 2 closes with, blessed are all who trust in God and his anointed one. So those, that, that's how we see the hinge of these two psalms. They're held together by this idea of blessing. Blessed is the man, the individual. Blessed are all peoples, nations, kings, rulers, if they do certain things. Now, First things first, Psalm 1, basically Psalm 1 says this, whoever you are, and this applies to all of you here this afternoon, whoever you are, whatever your circumstances, if you want God's blessing, if you don't want God's blessing, you are confused about many things, but if you want God's blessing, God's blessing starts with hearing what God has said. That's where it starts. And you've got to tune some stuff out because the world is full of godless voices, the, the, the counsel of the ungodly, it's full of sinful life ways, the ways of the wicked. It's full of a bunch of self-proclaimed authorities who pretend that they're wiser than God, you know, the, the, the seat of the scoffers. And you're going to have to tune a lot of stuff out. You know, if you want to hear the counsel of the wicked, the ways of sinners, the seat of scoffers, just look at what is trending in your feeds, and I'm sure you will see what the psalm is talking about. You're going to have to tune a bunch of that out, and you are going to have to marinate in the Torah of the Lord. The Torah, the Torah is just a word that means instruction. You're going to have to sit with what God has said, and don't, don't, you cannot do a drive-by. You have to meditate on this. Now, for the exiles, what was the Torah? Well, the Torah was the five books of Moses. And if you think about those five books, you guys have said Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you look at those five books... The writer of Psalm 1 is saying, you, you, Israel, exiles, you're going to have to soak in that five-book story of how God chose and delivered and schooled Israel to be the son that Adam was supposed to be. So Adam was God's son. He rebelled. 
Now you got Israel. God chooses Israel, delivers Israel, schools Israel to be the son ruling the land that Adam was supposed to be. And you can see the, you know, the, the five books of Moses. They basically take us from the creation of the world until the, out, the borders of Canaan, where we're about to go in and take the land that God has promised. And in all the complexity of the Torah, and it's very complex, the central storyline of those five books is so very simple. It is that God created this wonderful kingdom. We call it the world. He created that kingdom to be ruled by his children. He loves us, and he gave us the world to rule over. There was this disastrous rebellion with Adam and Eve. And from that point on, what we see in the Torah is this unswerving commitment of the holy God to take sinners who eventually end up as slaves and turn them into righteous rulers. That's the Torah. God takes sinners who don't deserve one bit of his grace and love. They end up as slaves. He breaks their chains. He brings them out. He schools them because he wants them to become righteous rulers over a new kingdom, a new Eden. We call it Canaan. These people, as they learn Torah, as they sit under the word of the Lord, they will, be, they will learn to love their father king. Man, just so into God. <laughs> they will learn how to love their neighbors in a way the pagans can only imagine. They will learn to skillfully steward the riches of this land God gives them, and all of that will be grounded in the glorious truth that the Psalms celebrate over and over, the steadfast love of the Lord our God endures forever. God is faithful when we are not. That is what the Torah shouts forth. And the Psalm 1 says you're going to have to soak in that because if you soak in that story, you just let it wash over you again and again. You think about it. You retell it. What's going to happen is that Torah will shape your character and it will settle your soul. You'll become like a tree with a root system by water, really strong, flourishing, because as you read that story and you soak in that story, what you're going to find is God's kingship, the fact that he's Lord and we're not, but also his fathomless goodness, his mercy and kindness and generosity. It's just going to wash over you and it's going to give you life. You're going to be able to say, as you know this God, he's my God. You're going to be able to say, I'm blessed, even when you're in really hard situations. Blessed is the man who soaks in Torah. And it's going to change your character. You're going to start to love this God so much because <laughs> he's so worthy that you're going to really hate sin. You're going to hate anything that throws shade at God's glory. You're going to hate the idols of the nations that dare try to compete with this glorious God. And it'll, it'll shape you beyond that. You're going to learn how to love sinners the way God loves sinners. And you're going to start to know where history is going because God tells you in the Torah. And you're going to start having peace in that plan and start having wisdom that comes from knowing where, where the world is going. You're going to start bringing forth fruit seasonally and your leaf will not wither. That's what happens when you soak in Torah. But what you'll also find as you soak in Torah is it will eventually bring you to the limits of the Torah. Because Moses writes these five books and it's a story without an ending. You get to Deuteronomy and Moses, for five books, has been telling us who God is and what God is going to do for his people and for the world. That's all very exciting. But Deuteronomy, very clearly, as Moses dies, Deuteronomy leaves us waiting. The Torah leaves us waiting. At the end of Torah, you know, we've had this grand deliverance from Egypt, and we've walked through the wilderness for 40 years, and now here we are, about to get the land. But the giant question at the end of Torah is, will Israel be the son of God that Adam was supposed to be? 
Well, you know, if you read the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is that story continues to unfold after Torah, in what we call the prophets, it becomes very clear that Israel is not the righteous son through whom God is going to bless all of the nations. Israel ends up being kind of a moral and spiritual train wreck, don't they? They throw off the Torah. They forget God. They actually start imitating the nations, the sin of the nations. They end up crushed under the heel of pagan powers. Israel's a mess. And so we kind of start to hope there's no king in Israel. Maybe that's the problem. We start to hope God will raise up someone who can kind of obey in our place. And so there's a lot of hope. When David comes along, you know, you, that story in Samuel, David comes along, and after a lot of hardships, a lot of ups and downs in his circumstances, eventually he comes to the throne, and then shortly thereafter, God actually promises with him. He covenants with David, I'm going to give your seed, your offspring, an enduring kingdom. And we think, finally, it's here. Maybe David and his seed, they'll be the righteous ones who secure our inheritance. And it's not that way at all, is it? One by one, the kings fail terribly in some cases, all the way until those horrific exiles first to Assyria, to Babylon. It's just awful. The kings are disasters by and large. And yet for the one who is rooted in the Torah, you know that the exile, like Moses' death, the exile cannot be the end of the story. God's true son who will be what Adam was not, he must still be to come because God promised it. And that son is the subject of Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, what you have is what Psalm 1 called the counsel of the wicked. Now is the counsel of peoples and nations and kings and rulers who take counsel against God and against his anointed. This includes the kings of Israel, shockingly enough, the kings of Israel and Judah, and they take counsel to throw away God's yoke. We will rule the earth, we will rule our kingdoms with autonomy. God will not be our high king. We will be the sovereigns who do things our way. That's the counsel of the peoples and nations and kings and rulers in Psalm 2. And my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 2, verse 4, because they're about, there's this raging of the, of the nations. Let's just throw off God and throw off the yoke of his anointed one. And in, in the courts of heaven, verse 4 says, the walls are just shaking with the laughter of God. God, it's a strong word, God mocks them. He just laughs. It's like the belly laugh of God holds them in derision. Can you imagine God looking down from heaven? These little ants running around, brandishing their spears and swords. We're not going to let you be God. Oh, I'm impressed. Check this out. We're moved when the heathen rage. God is not moved. And to the Torah, God adds a decree, a promise to his son who is coming to rule the earth. And he says, you ask of me and I will give you all nations as your inheritance. And he adds as well to all kings and rulers of the earth, he adds a warning, kiss the sun. Sit up and pay attention, kiss the sun. Blessed, even as the man was blessed who meditates in Torah in Psalm 1, blessed are all, at the very end of the psalm, blessed are all who 
Knowing Torah and the prophets, knowing the storyline, they take refuge under the scepter of this anointed son of God who sits on the, the holy hill of Zion, who received God's grace through him because God's rule is so gracious and kind, but also it is a rule. Receive the reign of the son of God. And it's serious because we can sit and we can sort of, you know, say this is just grand, grand talk. The defiant will be broken in pieces. They will be shattered like a vessel, a potter's vessel, and they will be swept away like chaff in the judgment of God. It's very, very serious. So these are the two things on the door. The promise of Torah and then God's decree to his anointed son. Those are the two things that we find are inscribed on this two-paneled door that opens into the cathedral of the Psalter. And everything else that the exiles see as they journey through this 150 psalms, everything else is related to those two things, the Torah and its promises and God's decree to this anointed one. Now, what I want to do, having looked through the doorway and at the doorway, much more briefly, I just want to turn around now and look back at our lives in light of what we have seen through the door and inscribed on the doorway. Because you understand, of course, that in 2023, to us, the true Son of God, as Isaiah says, has been given. To us, the Son has been given. We're living today in the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The anointed one whom God sent, he has died for our sins. He has been raised from the dead. Scriptures tell us he is sitting at God's right hand with all authority in heaven and earth. We're living in the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The anointed one sits at God's right hand. And now the Torah for us as God's people today, it isn't just the five books of Moses and the prophets. Our Torah, our instruction includes what we call the Gospels and the epistles and the whole quote-unquote New Testament. This full revelation of God including everything it says about Jesus, God's anointed son. That's where we are. And it is interesting to notice that still all around us today, and this will never change, if you listen to the individuals and the families and the peoples and the nations of 2023, you know, the world around us, you will see and hear that people desperately want to be blessed. Some of you in here today are not really into church. You're not into God. You're not into Jesus. I'll tell you what you are into because every human is. You're into being blessed. People want blessing. Human lives are a relentless quest for happiness, for prosperity, for security. We're seeking that individually. We're seeking that as people groups. This is just who we are. And in our time, no less than the days of Psalm 1, there are all kinds of godless voices and life ways on offer and so-called authorities, and they claim to have what we seek. We can tell you how to be blessed. Some of these voices, not all of them, but some of them openly defy and try to suppress the good news that Jesus is life. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is brings us the blessing of God. Some voices in our world today hate that and want it to go away and to die. So my question to you all who worship the Lord, who follow Jesus, this, I want to leave you with this question. I want to just soak in this question for a moment. Are you, in this world in which you find yourself, are you rooted in the Torah of the Lord? Are you rooted, really rooted, in the Torah of the Lord. I observe 
two things, and I imagine you do too, when I look at the North American church when it comes to those scriptures. I observe, number one, that our knowledge of the scriptures is incredibly shallow. People who say they follow Jesus don't know the Bible much at all. When is the last time that you or you as a family meditated in the Torah of the Lord? Do you know what it means to meditate? It means you undistractedly sit with this and you ponder it and ponder it and ponder it. I am haunted by Deuteronomy 6 where Moses says to the families of Israel, listen y'all, you need to talk about this stuff I am saying to you as you are sitting in your house, as you are walking by the way, as you are lying down at night, as you are rising up in the morning. You need to be talking about this stuff. You need to take a hammer and nails. You need to nail this stuff to the doorposts of your house, nail it to your gates so you're constantly walking by it. You need to be thinking about it and talking about it and even wrestling with it. So I want to ask you all here, what is it in your houses and in your individual lives? What are you talking about? As you rise up, lie down, walk by the way, sit in your house. What is consuming your conversation? Is it your hobbies? Is it your feeds? Is it your shows? Is it your earthly affairs and your money and your school and your mortgage and just, you know, the neighbors and the workplace? And I mean, fine, those are fine things to talk about. When is the last time you had an extended reflection together on the Torah of the Lord? You have to devote time to nailing the word of the Lord over the, your gates and you, on your doorposts and then actually stopping and looking and listening. And I think related to our sort of shallow knowledge of the word of the Lord, I think often part of the shallowness is that when North American Christians often read the Bible, you hear this in our, in our, in our songs. What we're often looking for when we pick up the scriptures is we are looking for an inspirational quote. I need a daily bumper sticker. I need a little emotional fix to kind of make me feel a little better about whatever. We don't often pick up the word of the Lord as a curriculum for rule. The Torah was given to Israel to take slaves and turn them into rulers. But the thing about North American Christians is I don't think many of us think that we are rulers in training. Do you realize that when you, God makes you his child, he makes you his child to rule his kingdom. If you follow Jesus, you are following the Lord of heaven and earth to rule and reign with him. That is not something you just wander into without training. And the scriptures are given to us to help us as we meditate together, to learn how to be great worshipers, to learn wisdom. We actually know what's up in the world because we've soaked in what God has said about it. To learn like impressive neighbor love, the kinds of neighbor love that you're not gonna find outside of Jesus. To learn how to steward God's world because it is our Father's world. This is all what the Torah was given to do. But our knowledge is often shallow. And as a result, there's a second thing I notice, and I'm sure you do too, and that is among a lot of North American Christians, even as our knowledge of the word is often shallow, our confidence in the word is often so very weak. You know, like many of us, and I'm almost done, like many of, many of God's people before us, we, we live in a world where what opposes God very often seems like it has the upper hand. 
I mean, I feel that. You feel that some days. Some days you don't have to look any further than your own heart, your own sin. I have stuff in my life. I'm like, is this ever going to change? I can stand and sing on Sunday and talk Bible talk, but man, this, uh, you know, you look at your suffering sometimes. We've got people in this church right now that are going through suffering. It feels like God just won't let up. It feels like these hard things are just smashing through people's lives. Like, where, God, where are you? It can be very hard. And we look around at world powers sometimes. And it's just like, wow, you know, they've got all the microphones. They've got all the, all the power. And this doorway to the Psalter, this doorway to the 150 Psalms, basically says to those who struggle with their confidence in God's word, listen, struggling Christian, come home. Come, come on in. Come home to your God, your people, your story, your future. Come home to the Torah. Come home to God's anointed one to whom the Torah points. And just come in and just meditate with God's people from that very first, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? All the way to that final hallelujah, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Just come in and meditate, walk. I think that is why God often makes our lives hard. It is God's loving kindness that drives you and me as it drove the exiles out of every false hope that we have. You know, our small efforts at self-reform, God just drives us out of that. Our dreams of comfier circumstances, you know, the, 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 the dream life, God just drives us out of that. Our trust in better princes, if we could just get you know, the right election results, God often drives us out of that. And he drives us out of all those false hopes into the cathedral of his word where we find God, his presence, his purposes that never fail, the loving kindness of God that is forever. Because God is not interested in our fantasies about our best life. God is interested in our knowing him and walking with him. Because God knows what we sometimes struggle to hold on to. If we are not rooted like trees in God, we will wither. And so that's my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, today as we stand in this doorway. Come home. Come home. Amen. Bless these things, Lord, to our hearts and our lives. In Jesus we pray. Amen.